Hello and welcome to a very special mini episode of Finogo Fin Talks, or as we're calling it, Finogo Fin Chats. I'm here at Money 2020 with Patrick Green, the global head of AML at Banking Circle. Uh, it's, so apologies for any background noise. We're here recording live at the conference. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? And how have you been enjoying May 2020? Very, very well, thank you. I'm tired. I think um, day three is always the um, is the test of, of conversations and how the last two days have gone um, and, and, and the after effect, if you will. So, so tired, but, um, but energized. Looking forward to this. Great. Glad to hear it. So um, I know you've been very busy through the conference. Uh, did you manage to go to any talks? How you found the actual conference itself? I made it to one talk yesterday. I had the best intention of going to a yeah. good four or five on each day. But um, I think the beauty of this conference is that you see so many faces, those that you plan to see and those that you don't, but it's a nice surprise anyone. So I think I've been to one actual event, but um, but a lot of good meetings in, in the meantime. Great. Fantastic. To hear. And so from all the conversations you've been having, What's your impression on how fintechs are just generally preparing for this coming uptick in regulatory demands from the EU, especially as AML efforts are ramping up? You know, we're going to see the Anti-Money Laundering Authority being formed at some point in the next couple of years. Uh, Questionable as to where it goes. I think uh, at Fenergo, we are very much hoping it comes to Ireland, but it could be anywhere. I think it's um, it, it's interesting. I've, I mean, to answer your first question, um, I think in the last couple of years we've seen a real uptake or, or an increase in uptake in um, in firms, especially fintechs, taking AML more seriously. Dare I say? I think um, just the environment that they operate in now, payments in general, the regulation is getting higher and higher. The standards are anyway. So I think fintechs have now really fully embraced that because of the the level of pressure that banks like ourselves are applying. You know, because we face the full. Fun brunt if you will of the regulator and we're now seeing less forced on the fintech to more actually proactively adopting um changes you know we're seeing some real good standards in in terms of um, what they're doing in terms of you know mla being implemented i think um, a lot of european countries are, are competing for that um home status if you will uh, it would be interesting to see where that lands but um it's it, it's positive i think overall yeah i think one of the things that has been discussed a lot in the industry for the past five probably way longer years is the idea of racial harmonization and there's a general hope that we're going to see that happen with, with the amla and i think if you look at other not that we're going to talk about crypto on this but looking at the markets and crypto assets uh regulation which looks like it should be a unified piece of regulation but is actually very varied depending on the nation that implements it looking just at six amld uh the Six Times Money Laundering Directive, which has been implemented to varying levels and varying uh, fashions across the EU, uh, I think this is something that sorely needs us. Yeah, I agree. And and actually, what's been really interesting to see the last few years, especially post you know the the swear word, so to speak, Brexit, um, with a lot of um, European countries trying to become that home of fintech. What we've seen is almost a race from those countries to a become the home for fintechs and uh, payment firms, but also get a kind of a, a big tick from the regulators. So we've seen those kind of those territories outside of the UK really try to race to become the, the home of regulation and the home of um, fintech. So, you know, take Luxembourg, for example. Um, they've implemented AMLD into into law. A lot of countries are still very much in that. It's regulation, it's not quite law yet, but some of these countries are now really, really enforcing it. And so these fintechs are going into new jurisdictions for whichever reason, um, decision-making-wise. 
they're having to now embed a really, really solid framework from an AML perspective. So it's really interesting to see actually that it's not just the, the race to become the home of fintech, it's also the race to become the home of regulation, which is actually, selfishly speaking, quite nice. And it helps us a lot, if I'm honest. Um, but uh, yeah, I think AML, MLD6, MLA, and you know, to, to your point, um, the, the crypto regulation that's coming in will only be a good thing. The question's always when. Well, right, because the ideas are great and, you know, let's just talk about how we, you know, uniform regulation, how we apply a, a good standard. When does it get implemented? When will it happen? Like, still? Sure. I, I don't think that's, that's one of the things that business always find very difficult, right? Rate uncertainty is always a, a massive issue for any business because they don't know how to operate otherwise. Yeah, it's an important point. this really got to think about as well is that um, businesses have different um, arms to, to their book, right? They have different industries that they serve and especially fintechs and, and the majority of the market here, they have different um, they have bits of business that different banks have a risk appetite for. So the constant moving of regulation, banks have to endorse that, they have to drive that also, but then fintechs have to react to that. And so they're constantly going this merry-go-round of how do I make my AML control environment strong enough for an ever-changing regulatory framework, uh, environment. So I think since insanity around when this lands, who it applies to, I think will be beneficial for everyone. Sure. Well, yeah, of course, it always makes sense to, to know what you're working towards and when that's going to hit. And I, th I think you talked about some interesting stuff there, but one of the things that really stuck out was how places want to become the home of fintech and the home of regulation. And I think... It's probably still, for me, in my opinion, it's probably still London. It's probably still the UK for now. Um, but one of, one of the reasons why I think that's the case is that the FCA is a very flexible regulator. So for me, and please tell me your, your thoughts on this, like, do you think that flexibility, strong AML, and also a competitive fintech market can all coexist in one, uh, one local financial ecosystem? I think it has to. Um, in all fairness, I think if any regulator in the FCA is, is, a, is a very good example, we've had a lot of practice in the UK in terms of evolving industries, evolving um, regulation, whether it's, you know, fintechs, MSBs, crypto firms with Mika coming through. I think they have to be flexible because, you know, regulation, um, implementation into law, evolving kind of verticals, it's constantly, constantly changing. And, you know, regulation is always one thing is it tends to get implemented after something has been broken. Right, and and so I think we have to acknowledge the fact that, or be open to the fact that flexibility is the only way that you can solve some of the problems that we've seen in the past. And I think the, the FCA are, are good at that; they've had experience of it. And I think if other regulators can learn from that kind of blueprint, if you will, I think it'll be beneficial. That's that's a really good point, and that's something that personally I've always found frustrating about uh, the grocery industry. Right, is something sort of break before anyone decides to fix a problem, and it, whenever it breaks, it breaks incredibly bad lad yeah, yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you think there's a way that you can do all of those things and be proactive would that be better for the industry would that be better for the pentax i think there are in in short yes but i think you've got to motivate um firms banks fintechs such as take it seriously yeah i think there's always um you know the, the obvious motivations are the sales they are you know how do i, I win your business etc motivating and it's an age-old problem right of how do you motivate a company to take aml really seriously to the point that you're not just and regulators too you're not just reviewing frameworks in terms of new regulation but you're you know um horizon landscaping 
looking at the future, how do we learn from the past and look to the future? So I, I think that motivation to be proactive hasn't always been there. It was meant to say across the board. Um, whereas I think now, you know, especially if you look at crypto, I think there is an acknowledgement that you have to be ahead of the game if you are in any way going to mitigate the risks of what an industry can bring, whether you're a bank, a regulator, or a, a, a paling firm. So, yeah. I know, I agree. And I think uh, yeah, reg regulatory changes can have really massive impacts. Like, obviously, back in the uh, late 80s and 90s, we had, you know, one AMLD, and that burned our entire regulatory industry uh, when it comes to AML. But then you also had... Um, banking regulation change in the UK that launched all the digital challenger banks. And I think most of them have now, I think, well, Revolut, Starling and Monzo and Tandem have all recently announced that they are profitable now, right? They've had these these huge changes and that was only possible because of, like those banks wouldn't have been able to exist in the 90s, right? right. Not just from a technological standpoint, but also from a racial standpoint. So, so it's interesting how uh, racial change can have such a huge impact and how being proactive about things could make significant change and really revolutionize the industry. But yeah, so so to move on, like uh, to more to more financial crime matters in particular, what one of one of the things that I've I've always noticed is when compliance officers come together, when rotary people in in uh, financial institutions come together, that's when they really get cross institutional information sharing happening, right? That's when typologies are shared. That's when, you know, you go to a talk and someone says, oh, we're seeing an uptick in this. You're like, oh, we're also seeing an uptick in this. And it turns out boiler room fraud is the next big thing and no one knew about it, but everyone was seeing it individually. As someone who's quite uh, wired into the space, uh, what sort of things are you seeing? What sort of common threads are you seeing between fintechs when it comes to new concerns about money laundering and cancerous financing threats? It's an interesting one, and I like your point about the um, the compliance officer um, and and the rest of the business actually talking, because I think a large part of the issue that we see, where, and, and it doesn't matter if you're a bank or a, a regulator or whatever, is is communication. I think just openly discussing issues and challenges has always been a little bit taboo. From a compliance perspective, you know, we've got within the industry, you've got some real, you know, intelligent, strong uh, compliance personnel. But the relationship with the business is always, you know, quite difficult because sales have got to hit targets and getting able to bring business in. Compliance are very much protective. Until they talk, you know, they, they, they don't always like tend to see, actually, just from the conversation, we can acknowledge and get ahead of the problem. And I think in this industry, it's, it's similar. I think um, we've started to see like a, a positive change now in terms of how fintechs work with banks. I think before there was almost a, you know, a worry that um, if certain risk was high or, you know, there were certain uh, trends that they were starting to see from a compliance perspective, you know, typologies or whatever, they wouldn't necessarily be engaging with the bank because they didn't want to present as having a problem. Sure. And so they don't want to be seen to be the high risk, you know, firm, etc. Whereas actually that open dialogue from a very early stage helps. I mean, the biggest problem that we, we see regardless of, you know, fraud is obviously the, um, subject of um, choice at the moment because it's so hard to get ahead of you know, no one has the silver bullet answer to how do you how do you solve a fraud but what we do see is where you know payment firms um, other businesses in general work with the likes of ourselves with their banking partner to say we're actually we're noticing these trends we're seeing these typologies here's some information we can use that information we can share that information and this whole concept of actually communicating 
instead of worrying that actually someone's going to you know judge you for it, whether it's an FIU, whether it's a regulator, whatever, I think there's a general willingness now to start to share data, share information, and try to solve and get ahead of the problem. But so I think we're seeing a lot more communication um, lines opening up now in terms of how do we handle. That's that's really great to hear. Why why do you think those lines of communication are opening in the first place though? Because I imagine before there was, like you said, there was that fear of seeing being seen as high risk, and I guess essentially even being offboarded, which would be a yeah. nightmare to deal with. But why? Why do you think? Is it just now that the industry has shifted, communications have it at events, and people are now realizing that no, we need to have this open lines of communication to better serve. I think so. I think because what, what the, the the situation you end up getting in is either you know phones can't be banked because you know risk appetites um, from different banks kind of set in. Um, access to accounts, access to, to banking in general becomes harder. So firms have gone from, you know, trying to present the golden picture whilst, you know, trying to keep everything else highly quiet um, to avoid that, you know, confrontation piece or the offboarding or whatever. I mean, that's started to shift now where firms are actually openly saying, well, how do we do this better? How do we, you know, work with our banking partners? You know, I think there's almost been a kind of a penny drop moment where firms are starting to realize that actually... If we, if we want to build this perfect AML framework or as good a framework as we can, we need to be engaging. We need to, you know, ask for help where possible. I think the key part of that is banks being um, encouraging of that as opposed to, you know, you don't mean this criteria, this criteria, this monetary income value, we're not going to look at you. You know, there are, there are some great, as you can see here, there are some great firms here, right? Yeah. Great SMEs, really, really solid businesses. They need that opportunity. And I think collaboration has to encourage that sort of dialogue so i think you know there's more and more now firms and compliance guys are saying like you know we, we struggle with this issue how do we fix it you know what are you guys doing and whereas in the past it was very these conferences were very much trying to solve for payment issues or trying to solve for you know rails and and how do we do um, payments quicker and more efficient you're now starting to see the compliance attendance here you know triple quadruple in size and people are like actually how do we do this but in a regulatory friendly way versus yeah. just how we make payments easier and cheaper. So it's, I think there's a really nice, and you're wrong. I don't think, you know, we're at a point now where we can and we all come together and solve it. There are always going to be competitive banks, yeah, competitive fintechs or whatever. But I think that thin crime compliance piece could definitely. Yeah, for sure. And, and like you said earlier, I, I don't think there is a silver bullet for any of these issues, right? I, I think uh, that's just, everyone wants there to be one. Unfortunately, <laughs> the world is always more complicated than that. But yeah, it's it's great to hear that this these conversations are happening in, in a more and more open way, right? And and speaking of open communication, and given that we're in Amsterdam at Money Twenty Twenty, what what are your thoughts on the idea of real data sharing, like especially around cross border payments, uh, TMNL? So uh, I think that's Transaction uh, Monitoring Netherlands. They also have a Dutch version, which I can also. Uh, and it's uh, also Cosmic in in uh, Singapore. Uh, the, these kind of proto-programs are being discussed quite heavily now around data sharing between institutions. Do you think that will ever happen? Do you think there's... Um, and if, if it does happen, do you think it will have a significant impact on the fight against financial crime? I mean, to, to answer your questions backwards, yes, I think it would have a, a real positive impact. Um, I think the challenge is... Um, a, Again, as, as we alluded to at the start of the call, it's the conversations and the ideas are great. It's when and the, the biggest challenge, and you know, we've we've seen this evolve in terms of how do you get, um, you know, almost like a common KYC data sharing uh, repository. How do you get, you know, firms just 
using the same information to onboard clients or due diligence clients or whatever. And it just, it never really, really takes off. We have a lot of discussions about it. We talk at forums. We probably fill most of the panel events in 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 the, in the year talking about this stuff. Um, I'm supportive of it. I think, you know, the more we can share data, albeit as long as it's kind of GDPR friendly and we're not, you know, breaching any kind of cross-border um, regulations, laws, etc. The concept thing is great. I think we need to share more because, you know, especially when you look at the likes of fraud, the only way you even get close to getting ahead of that challenge is to be able to share data, is to be able to, you know, teach um, machines, banks, regulators about what's going on and, you know, how, how do we learn and get ahead of it. But I like the idea, realistically, will it land? TBC, to the study. Is it, is it? I'll believe it when it's there, sort of like. I think so. I, yeah. I mean, and, you know, we, we would forever contribute to these sorts of conversations. And, you know, we are, you know, as banking circle, we're, we're very, very willing to, to contribute. But I think it, it almost comes down to the idea's great, concept's great, implementation. It almost gets back to being competitive, right? Who does it? Who owns it? Who owns that, um, you know, the build of it? Yeah, sure. And then we just see it start to fizzle out. But hopefully, fingers crossed. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's always worth recognizing that there are a lot of issues here at play. There's lots of different interests at play. And also, the halls of power move very slowly, right? They, they always do. Um, regulation will always lag behind innovation. Change will always lag behind uh, popular consumer demand, right? Then the regulation will follow 10 years later. <laughs> exactly. And and that's because, I, I guess, to, to one point, like they need to see that it is actually happening and actually working before they can, uh, I guess, regulate and legislate for these things. Agree. And if you look at, you know, things like the UBO register, that that was a that was an idea that was discussed for a very, very long time. It was something that, you know, the company's house, I mean, we went to, that's a whole subject in itself, the UK company's house, for example, just the ability to, to see that data, use that data in some way, shape or form, helps compliance teams. It helps AML teams to actually a, you know, annoy the client less in terms of asking for certain information or whatever, but also in the background, you know, start to build up a bit of, you know, analysis. But as we've seen with that, you know, it gets rolled out and then all of a sudden it's, oh, let's kind of rein that back. We don't like what we're showing here. And I, I think it's the same thing here. And if we can just get to the point where, you know, we implement this, yes, there's going to be some kind of tubing issues or, or frictions or whatever, but actually is the concept right? in terms of why this information you know, is being shared, why is the data being you know, displayed, then that's got to win. That, that has to be the, the argument that it's, it's for the right reasons. It's not because, you know, people want to go online and start, you know, publicly accessing this stuff. It's banks, regulators, FIUs. This stuff helps. It helps us to, you know, solve the problem long term. Yeah, which, which I think is really interesting, right? Because the uh, European Data Protection Board really recently came out against the UBO registers being uh, open because of the GDPR issues. And I'm always in two minds about that because I, I, I on one hand, sure, not all this information should be, should be publicly available. These are complex structures and sometimes there are very legitimate reasons for this information being not publicly available. On the other hand, I also believe in a strong free press and people being able to investigate and uncover these issues. But I think so long as, for me, I guess ultimately, so long as financial institutions have access to this data and are able to use it against financial prime, then we're, we're overcoming some of the major issues. If, if not the, if not like the bigger, more consequential issues of, of society. I, I, I completely agree. And I think actually, I mean, we've, we've seen it in other um, 
walks of life in terms of giving access to you know the, the relevant bodies that need it right maybe you don't give it to certain newspapers um to to, to go out and, and find out who owns what and xyz but in terms of financial institutions the, the the sorts of bodies that are you know ambitious about solving financial crime and fixing and, and getting ahead of you know even down to the point of client due diligence you you you're almost as a bank you're always in this you know conflict between we want a nice onboarding process you know we don't want to annoy the client but in the same token you're like well if you've got a real complex ownership chart that goes through various countries various layers that's probably not going to take two days to onboard you and if it does there's probably an issue there right and the, so i think you know these these banks you know regulatory bodies fius etc given them the access to this information you know and, and in the same way some of the repositories work today you, you know you you um you know, swap keys you you agree to exchange your data i think the platform that concept is is great maybe you don't open it up to the world i, I can quickly get that side but if you know it, and, and when we look at it at kind of closer to home level if we're on board and our due diligence in clients and we want to you know take out that friction of constantly annoying the client but continually reaching out then they've kind of always got to acknowledge on the same token that we should probably share this information and make life a little bit easier for, for our thing crime guys rather than beating them up with a stick because they're asking us you know why you know they've got 25 um, companies in between them and the UBO so I think balance is key but the the one well, concept is I don't think something we can argue with right it's yeah but again it all boils down to that question of when when's it can win when I th- I've started counting the amount of grey hairs I, uh, I tend to take on when, when the idea becomes a um, reality. And I think the, I think the, the situation they're in now with having to roll it back, to me, suggests that there are going to be a lot of conversations, a lot of legal processes. So I think that unfortunately feels like it's going to be longer than where we would have liked. Which then, you know, starts to potentially push back other regulatory implementations other nice ideas that again we keep talking about at conferences and they never come to fruition so hopefully hopefully um hopefully in this lifetime <laughs> all we can do is hope and keep pushing right just bit by bit yeah i mean just to, just to um just to give it a different spin i have a very very poor taste in in sport and um last night saw uh, my beloved team um win a trophy for the first and probably the last time in my lifetime so I'm not against um, hope and belief, and I think we will get to a point where some of this stuff actually makes sense. It might mean a shift in certain, you know, administration bodies, countries, and maybe this, you know, um, plan for certain countries to be the only fintech regulation that would drive this forward a little bit further. But it's the conversation is there. It's you know there is a lot of you know um, pressure. Yeah, when is always the hardest part, and I hate it because I you know just such an on the fence answer, but we'll just never know, right? It's yeah. It's coming. I feel like it's coming. Yeah. It is, I, I feel like there's a general frustration from everyone who works in fin crime and compliance that you can't just push things over the fence one way or the other. But that's that's our lot, right? As as people on, on this side of things and who didn't go into politics. <laughs> I completely agree. And it's almost, you know, it doesn't matter if it's fin crime or, you know, just general life. People tend to learn the most when they get hit the most and whether that's yeah. fine whether that's a you know a regulator coming in saying you're not going to onboard any more clients until you do this right i think some we always having to treat um businesses firms or whatever a little bit like a you know um a child at time you say look unless you do x but why doesn't it happen so I, I i there is a general shift you can see it and especially for events like this you can see the shift in the mindset i was at crypto conference um in a couple of months ago I mean, the difference in, in attitude towards regulation then because of everything going on in the US and with Mika coming in 
was very, very different to, say, a content I went to two years ago when it was very much a very different environment. Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say it's a very different environment. Um, I mean, shorts and t-shirts swapped with, um, you know, <laughs> suits and, and, and ties was a, a good way of looking at it. But it's, uh, yeah, I think firms now are starting to realize that actually that it, if they're going to get it right, they're going to grow, they're going to expand into different jurisdictions, I can get their stuff right. Sure. Banks and regulators and FIUs have to be encouraging of that versus, you know, if, you're not, if it's not there, we don't onboard you in this. Door. That's true. I think that's a great, a great note to end on. Patrick, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Uh, if people listening want to find you anywhere, where can they find you? Where can they get in touch? Oh, I mean, my friends, family, and my colleagues can't find me at the best of times, <laughs> but um, LinkedIn, I'm, I'm always um, active on there. Similarly, we are based in London. We are very active in terms of conferences, events, or whatever. Reach out. We're, we're very, very happy to have conversations like these um, and just speak to clients in general. This stuff is interesting. It's Fair enough. So, so LinkedIn for Patrick Green or bankingcycle.com. Correct. Correct. Brilliant. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of Finogo Fintalks recorded at Money 2020. I'm Dana Sigadu and I've been joined by Patrick Green, Global Head of AML at Banking Circle. Make sure to subscribe to the show. It's available wherever you choose to get your podcasts. You can always find us at finogo.com. Goodbye.